Again, Lord, we pray as your disciples asked as well that you would teach us to pray. Thank you that you haven't left any ambiguity for us, how to pray. Thank you for the richness of these words before us, the depth, how much you taught us in these few simple words. And I pray that today we would, we would learn a bit of that and that we would continue to learn and it would be a lifetime of learning for us. Help us to see how much we need to learn and how much we need your instruction. And I do pray, Lord, that the words that, that are said here this morning would indeed be your words and that they would change us to see the great privilege of prayer as your children. And that as we see that privilege, our hearts would be moved to pray more, to pray more fervently, to pray more according to your will, to pray more for your glory and in Christ's name, amen. Last week, of course, we began to study Jesus' words in Matthew 6, these words that are commonly called the Lord's Prayer. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. We looked at his words last week leading up to teaching them how to pray, and we saw that he's teaching them how not to pray in those verses. And we learned several things from what he said there. First of all, we learned that God's children do, in fact, pray. That is a mark of a Christian, someone who prays. Jesus assumes that's a regular part of his disciples' lives. But then we saw that not everything that looks like on the outside true prayer, not everything that looks like true prayer is actually true prayer. So Jesus wants us to pray in a way that is acceptable to God and and pleasing to him and is actually true prayer. And so he began by warning against two specific kinds of false prayer, the prayer of a hypocrite whose purpose is to only be seen by and impress other people And then the prayer of a pagan or a Gentile who thinks that if they pray long enough or use the right words that they will be heard for that, for that. And of course, both of those are false forms of prayer. So it's against this backdrop where our passage begins today. Jesus says in verse nine, pray then like this. In other words, avoid that kind of prayer by praying the way I'm going to show you. Pray then like this. Now just from those words alone, we learn several very important things about what Jesus is about to say about this prayer. First of all, we learn that what is going to follow is an excellent prayer. What is going to follow is the kind of prayer we should model, the kind of prayer that we know is going to be heard and answered because because for this reason, Jesus could have pointed us to the Psalms, the, the, the book full of prayers in, in the form of song. He could have pointed them to any number of prayers throughout the Old Testament that would have been exemplary. We think of David's prayers or Solomon's prayers or Hannah's prayer or any of the many recorded prayers throughout the Old Testament. But instead, he takes the time to personally teach his disciples how to pray using his own words. And therefore, we too should pay special attention to this prayer in particular to guide us. The Westminster Catechism says it well. It says this, the whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So we shouldn't exclude any of scripture. We should use it all. But we should pay special attention to where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So this prayer is brief, but as you've probably noticed and learned over the years, it's with meaning. 
Its words are chosen carefully and put together by our Lord, and therefore we would do well to pay careful attention to every single detail, knowing that Jesus himself intends us to learn from this prayer. And this is part of the reason we're going to look at it for eight weeks, is because we want to really dig in and see how much we can learn from the precise words that Jesus used. But then notice something else from these prayers. So not only the excellence of this prayer, but then Jesus says, pray then like this. That word like is very important. I like the way the King James translates it, which as far as it serves my memory, it says, therefore pray in this manner. He doesn't say pray this or pray these words exactly the same way every time. There's a world of difference. We should understand Jesus to be giving us a pattern, not a strict prayer that we should pray and never deviate from. It's a template, a guide. But he wants us to also have the freedom to use our own words. And this becomes clear because this isn't the only place where Jesus taught his disciples to pray, is it? If you look at Luke 11, there's another situation. It's a completely different context, but his disciples ask him to pray there, and he uses many of the same words, but not exactly. And so instead of trying to figure out, well, how did that happen? Well, we could, we could answer this question quite simply by saying, well, Jesus had a typical way he prayed, but he altered it for different occasions, and so he would perfectly expect us to do that as well. It's not a strict prayer. So this has some practical implications for us, noticing this, the way that Jesus says, pray then like this. So we should, a couple of things. We should not simply memorize this prayer and then pray it mindlessly, as some do, and maybe that's been in your background, depending on how you were brought up or whatever, as if it's some kind of good luck charm. And it's, it's sad. It, it's really sad that some people use this way, and, it, and it's, it's really sad because Jesus literally just warned us against that kind of prayer, against heaping up empty phrases, which like we saw last week is repeating things mindlessly as if they have some merit on their own. That's a false form of prayer. However, acknowledging that danger on that end of the spectrum, I believe we should still use this prayer and even use it verbatim sometimes. I believe we should memorize it. I believe we should teach it to our children. I believe we should pray it in family and corporate worship. And I think we probably will be using it at points. We're not going to say it every week because I don't think there's any requirement to do that. But I think, I think it's helpful for us to pray this together. I think it should be so ingrained in our minds because Jesus taught us to pray this way that, we, that it should be naturally there as a form whenever we pray. So, as long as when you pray it, you are actually praying it and not just heaping up empty phrases, not just simply reciting it, then it's a good prayer to use. But again, it's not just to memorize it, to memorize scripture, or, or for it to just somehow magically have powers of its own, but to inform our prayers. So we should seek to learn, we should seek to study this prayer and pray this prayer for this purpose, learning all that Jesus wants us to learn by it and then patterning our prayers after it. That should be our goal in prioritizing this prayer. After all, Jesus, Jesus told us that if we pray anything according to God's will, he hears us, right? And the best way to know that we're praying according to God's will is to pray according to the pattern that God, the Son, gave us. And that's what we'll be seeking to do through this sermon series. What did Jesus teach us in this prayer, and how can we pray in that way? 
So before we dig into the prayer itself, then, uh, I want to just briefly look at how it's laid out. Most of you are either very familiar with this prayer or, or have it well memorized already. But um, basically, what we see is a preface, our Father in heaven, how we address God. And that's what we're going to look at today. And then following that, there are six petitions. Some people say seven, depending on how you divide it. Um, but we see six petitions, six requests that Jesus takes a, teaches us to make. The first three have to do with God's concerns, God's glory, God's kingdom, God's will. And then the prayer moves from those petitions to petitions specifically about our needs, and specifically our needs for provision, for pardon, and for protection. And we'll talk about those in coming weeks. But that structure teaches us a lot about how we should pray, beginning with God's glory, God's concerns, and then moving to ours. God first, then us. But that's all, that's all to come. Today we're going to focus on the preface, the address at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. That's how we address God. And specifically, it's how we come to God and address him in contrast to how we are not to pray like we learned last week. So I'm calling this message, How to Pray as God's Child. How to pray as God's child. And there's three ways that I think we learn just from these simple words this morning. To pray as God's child means we pray with confidence, we pray with reverence, and we pray in the plural. We'll, come, we'll look at each of those in turn. So first, we pray with confidence. I want to look carefully at that fact that we address God as our Father because this is so commonplace, and it should be. I would say that all Christians should address God first and foremost as Father. There are other ways to address him. But since Jesus taught us Father, that we, we should expect to hear that a lot. But the danger is we hear it so much and we use it so much, we really for, can forget what we're really saying. And I think this is helpful to think about it this way. It was not always commonplace. Addressing God as Father was nearly unheard of in the Old Testament. It was unheard of, in fact. Look through the Old Testament. You won't find a single example of even the most devoutly religious man or woman addressing God as Father. It's not there. Now, God is referred to as a father in the Old Testament a few times, but it's always in context of the nation of Israel as a whole. God is the father of Israel, not God is the father of an individual person. That's, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? it there's got some, there had to have been something that radically took place to move us from that to now everybody prays to God as father. All Christians pray to God as father. And, and, and as you might guess, Jesus was that thing that happened. Jesus was revolutionary in the way that he prayed. Jesus almost exclusively referred to God as his father when he prayed. And the only time he didn't was on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking on us, on himself, our place. And that was the only place, only time he prayed in the, all of the gospels where he didn't address God as father. But then, of course, a few breaths later, he said to his father, into the, thy hand I commit my spirit, into your hand I commit my spirit. So Jesus was revolutionary. And of course, the reason is obvious, right? To those of us who know our theology, God was Jesus' father. And so of course he would, he would pray to him that way. But Jesus displayed a familiarity with God, a warmth with God, an intimacy with God that belonged to him as the eternal son of God. And so what we find here when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray in Matthew 6 is that he is inviting us into that relationship. 
He's teaching us to pray with that same confidence, that same familiarity, that same intimacy that he uses. Jesus is inviting us into the family relationship. He throws open the doors, if you will, of that exclusive from eternity relationship and clearly tells us that those who trust in him, those who follow him, can address God the same way. Brothers and sisters, this is because of the glorious doctrine of adoption. Adoption. Jesus came to make rebel sinners into sons and daughters. He came to make enemies of God into not only friends of God, children of God. He came as the one and only, only begotten son in whom the father was well pleased, the only one in whom the father was well pleased, to die and pay for the debt of wretches like you and like me. And not just so that God could forgive us from a distance and say, that person's forgiven, that person's forgiven, that person's forgiven in some cold sort of way, but to bring us into the family. To make us heirs of God with all the privileges of sonship. This is what the Apostle John communicates in the verse that we memorized several weeks ago together, John 1.12. John says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that is Jesus' name, God gave the right to become children of God. The right. Those who trust in Jesus aren't just saved, aren't just saints, aren't just redeemed. They're children. Children. Loved, precious, and honored in the sight of God. Think about how you view your children if you have children. And then think infinitely better than that. Everything good that you see, that, that, that we reflect about it toward our children in terms of love, and compassion and tenderness is just an image of God towards his children, towards the eternal son, and now through him to you and to me. And I would venture to propose to you this morning that your prayer life will be absolutely 100% affected by how much you grasp that God is your father. Absolutely. My daughter speaks freely and unhindered to me simply because of the security of who she is and who I am to her. She doesn't need to somehow win the right to speak to me. And I am, by the way, a sinful, flawed, completely far less than perfect father. How much more will, why would God have used the picture of a father if he didn't intend to communicate something tender, something like that, but much better, much more perfect than any earthly father. How much more will he gladly hear us when we speak to him? Now, having God as our father has endless blessings for us, brothers and sisters. If you desire, there's a book that I strongly recommend just for this part alone, if nothing else, but um, Thomas Watson, he's a little bit harder of a read. He's, uh, he's from the 1600s, but he, he details 20 benefits of having God as our Father. I'm not going to go through all of those for the sake of time this morning, but there were three that I wanted to bring out that he pointed out from Scripture that, are, that I think are going to be specifically helpful for us in, um, as we think about God as our Father, specifically in terms of how we approach him in prayer. First, if God is our perfect Father, he loves us from his deepest heart. He loves us from his deepest heart. Just the fact that he would call us children, he'd use that analogy, communicates something huge about his relationship with us. 
his great affectionate love for his children. The relationship between parent and child is one of love and affection by definition, unless there's something very wrong, very, unless sin has greatly distorted that relationship, and sadly it has in many cases in our broken world. But listen to what, listen to what John writes in 1 John chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. So not only does he love us because he's our father, but he protects us. He protects us as our father. Nothing that is ultimately bad for you can happen to you. Nothing. Psalm 91.10 promises us that no evil shall be allowed to befall you. Now, that doesn't mean Christians won't suffer. That doesn't mean they won't have trouble, as the psalm goes on to say very clearly that it does. But what it ultimately means is that trouble will always work out for your good because God is your protector. God is your defender. You are in the Father's hand and nothing can touch a hair of your head, Jesus says, except what he allows. He will protect you from Satan. He will keep you from falling away and everything less than that. And then thirdly, I want to point out too, if God is our Father, then he loves to give us what's good. He loves to give us what is good. Psalm 34.10 says that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The Apostle James calls God the Father of lights, from whom is every good and perfect gift. Everything good you have is from your Father. And then like we read last week in Matthew 7, Jesus says that your Father who is in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him. Think about the natural delight that you have if you're a parent of giving gifts to your children. Is that just not, is that not natural? We love to do that. And in some similar way and greater way, God delights to give good things to you. So brothers and sisters, I've perhaps labored this this morning, but I don't think we can labor this enough. Again, I think that how confidently we approach God in prayer is tied directly to how much we think of him as our father and how correctly we think of him as our father and what thinking of him as a father will do for us in prayer. Let's, let's not just call God our father as the theologically correct way to start our prayers, though it is that. But let our mind feast on all that, all that that means for us, all that God being our father communicates. If his heart is full of love and affection for you, then does that not give you confidence to come gladly to him? Knowing that his heart is for you, not against you? If he's your protector and your defender against all evil, shouldn't you be confident to come and ask him for help in fighting sin, fighting Satan, fighting temptation? His enemy is your enemy. Your enemy is his enemy. He's on your side and you're on his side. Will he not gladly help you in that fight? If his delight is to give you good things, does that not embolden you to come and ask? If you know that he likes to do it, if you ask what is good for you, he'll give it. And if you ask what's bad for you, he won't give it. And he'll give you something better. You couldn't be any safer with God as your father. So we should pray with confidence. Now, Jesus doesn't simply leave us with addressing God as father. He adds another word. He says, our father in heaven. Well, what's that a reminder to us of? Well, 
even though God is our Father, and we should approach him warmly and confidently and with a familial gladness, there's also a reverence that's due to him because he's in heaven. So we should pray with reverence. In other words, he's not just your buddy, not just your friend down the street, or, or even the dad. He's not even your dad the way your dad is your dad, even if your dad is a really good dad. He's your father in heaven. And so to pray like his child, we, we pray with reverence. Now, I want to point out a few scriptures here because when the scriptures talk about God being in heaven, it's usually to highlight particular things about him. So for example, it highlights how much greater he is than we are. This is from Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. If the earth, think about this, the earth here is so small that he would describe it as his footstool, the place he puts up his feet. Think about how much smaller we are, and let that cause us to come to him with reverence as the great being that he is and that we are not. And related to that, our Father being in heaven reminds us that he's infinitely wiser than we are. And his plans and his purposes are vastly superior to whatever we think we know. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now listen, here it is. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And by the way, do you know what this passage is talking about? It isn't, it isn't a passage that's primarily to do with God's sovereignty or his, his, uh, his working all things for good necessarily. What this passage is about is God's willingness to forgive sin. The verse right before that says, let him return to the Lord, that is the sinful man, that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. In other words, God is saying, you, if you were in my shoes, would not forgive you, but I will because my ways are higher and better and wiser than yours. We couldn't fathom a God that great, and that's why we need him to reveal himself to us. Another thing that's signified about God being in heaven is his holiness, his absolute separateness from sin and his purity. Psalm 11:4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. God is holy, separate from sin, and he sees perfectly that we are not. So we must be reverent for one who is so holy, especially in comparison to our lack of holiness. And finally, being in heaven means that he's absolutely powerful to do whatever he wants. And this is an encouragement to prayer. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. No one can question him. He has absolute power and authority to do whatever pleases him. So, those are just a few scriptures we could go on and on, but we're not going to. But as we bear in mind the knowledge that our Father is our Father in heaven, there are some practical ways this should affect how we pray. Uh, number one, avoid being overly casual. Avoid being overly casual. You don't want to talk to God as your buddy. I don't need to give a lot of examples of this. You've probably heard it. You've probably heard people that sound, it makes, sometimes makes us a little cringe a little bit sometimes when we hear the, you know, Jesus referred to as my homeboy or whatever. I've never heard anyone here say that, but uh, it, it, can get, it, it can get too casual 
for the Father that is in heaven. Another way that we pray fervent, that we pray reverently is with a mind to his goals first, not mine. If his ways are higher than mine and his thoughts than mine, then I should be seeking his goals and praying those first and pray for his purposes to be accomplished. I, I shouldn't come to him with a list of what I want him to do for me as if he's some kind of genie in a bottle. Seek first his concerns. Another way we can pray reverently is to pray big prayers. He's the God in the heavens who does all that he pleases. Pray for impossible things that you can't do. Only a father in heaven can do. Pray for the salvation of the people that you know that don't know him. He can do it. It's not too hard for him. Pray against the sin that rises fresh, the desires for sin in your own heart, in your own soul each day. It's not too hard for him. Pray for the success of the gospel in unreached lands, for the success of our missionaries. It's not too hard for him. The persecuted church, that they would stand strong and faithful. All these things are well within his capability to accomplish and, and, and do far more even than we ask. So let's ask what we think is impossible and then see what he will do. And then finally, we pray reverently by trusting him. Pray reverently by, by trusting him, whether he gives what we want or not, whether he answers the way that we hope he will or not. We trust that he is not only powerful, but he's wise. That he's our father who cares about us, who always does what is good for us, but that sometimes because of that, he won't answer in the way that we think would be best. So we pray, and then we trust it all into his hands. That's another way we can pray reverently. So in just these two truths about God, Jesus has taught us that we are to pray with a warm familiarity, familialness, a confidence because he is our father, but then also to pray with a proper reverence and respect for his majesty and his being God in heaven. But then there's a third way that Jesus teaches us to pray as God's child in this verse, and that is pray in the plural. Pray in the plural. We've heard the Lord's Prayer so frequently that maybe we look right past that first word, our Father. Our Father in heaven. So here and throughout the rest of the prayer, you will never find a singular pronoun. It's never me. It's never I. It's always we, our, us. What this indicates to us, brothers and sisters, is that prayer is a family activity. It's a family privilege. And the Lord's Prayer is a family prayer. Jesus intends for us to pray in the, content, in the context of a body of believers. You can't separate from yourself from your brothers and sisters any more than you can from your father. You're in the family. With the fatherhood of God comes the brotherhood of other believers. And in the very words Jesus gives us to pray, he assumes that will be true. And it's true in two senses. The Westminster Catechism, to quote it again, says that this teaches us we are to pray with and for others. With others and for others. I'm going to comment briefly on these two things. We are to pray with others. So again, the very language Jesus gives us, assume it. Who prays to our Father? We. We do. Together. So this, this corrects the individualism that is so common in our day. It's easy to think about our relationship with God, isn't it, as just me and God. And that's not the way we're in, I mean, it is, it is an individual relationship, but it's also a very mutual relationship. 
Christians should pray together. Now, is there a place for private prayer? Absolutely, we we talked about that last week. Jesus said that in in order to check your own heart and see if you are actually true in your prayers with other people, you should you should look at your own private prayer life and make sure that you're not being a hypocrite. So there's certainly a place for private prayer, absolutely. It's not either or, it's both and. I think that's what's being communicated here. So prayer should happen in several contexts. It should happen in homes, Christian homes. Husbands, are you praying with your wife? Should be. Parents, parents are you praying with your children? I know that most of you are. Christian roommates, pray with each other. The family is the most basic God-ordained unit of society. And in a Christian home, there should be prayer happening. Teach your children to pray. But it can't stop there either. We should pray whenever we meet together to catch up with another believer. We should pray when we are visiting together after church. Someone tells you about something they're struggling with or a need they have, there should be prayer. And there is much of the time, and I'm thankful for that in this, in this body of believers. When we remember that prayer is coming together to our Father who loves us and we're lifting up our hearts together to him, then prayer becomes, between Christians, the most natural thing in the world. It's part of our language. Our Father. Let's talk to him together. One of the most rewarding and refreshing times for me during the week is Thursday night prayer as a church. There's something God-ordained about praying together that reinvigorates us, puts new courage into us, new life to our faith as we hear our brothers and sisters praying alongside of us. So again, if you don't pray with other believers, I would encourage you to think about how you can do that. And then by praying in the plural, Jesus also teaches us to pray for others. And this will naturally follow from praying with others. The more we pray with them, the better we know them, the better we know what they need, and the more that the Holy Spirit will bring them to our minds throughout the week when we're not with them. We'll know what their needs are. So learning to pray not just for ourselves and our needs, but for the needs of others, that's a sign of spiritual maturity. Phil Riken, in his book, When You Pray, and it's on, it's on the Lord's Prayer. He gives an illustration of a little boy who's very demanding of his parents' care. He wants this, he wants that, he wants his parents to feed him, he wants his parents to find his shirt, he wants his parents to give him a snack, take him to the park, and a hundred other things. Me, 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 me. But then one day he surprises his dad by making a different kind of request. He says, Dad, can you come help my sister? She's climbed up on the dresser and can't get down. The father, will he not be touched and gladdened at this sign of maturity? and care for his sister. There's a privilege to bring not only our own, but the needs of others. Or uh, there's, a, there's a maturity to bring not only ours, but the needs of our, other, our brothers and sisters before the Father. And, and think about this, just as Jesus prays for you, his sibling, his much younger, much more immature sibling, we're following his example. We're imitating him. This is one reason, of course, why we send out prayer requests. We have a prayer chain, prayer updates, the daily prayer emails. It's to keep each other in front of us so that we remember to pray for each other. So a great place to start putting both of these into practice with and for others would be, um, as a family or whoever you live with, 
to pray for another individual or family in the church every day. You could take, uh, you could take a, um, you could make a, just make a list. That'd be maybe the easiest thing. Or you take a, uh, um, words, a directory and, and pray, pray through that. Or take the daily prayer emails, pray that together as a family. Then you're praying with and for others in one. What better way to remind yourself and teach your children that as a family, with a family prayer, we pray with and for other believers. It's a family privilege as the family of God. So when we pray, we pray as children of God, not, not as hypocrites who pray for the attention and the praise of other people, not as the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases, who think they'll be heard for their many words, but as children. Children. Children of God through Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, let us pray confidently, reverently, and plurally with and for other Christians. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus teaching us how to pray. We thank you that he teaches us that we we can approach you confidently. Help us to meditate this week on the truths surrounding the fact that you are our Father. Help us learn what that means. And as we learn what that means from your word, that you are our Father, may that knowledge encourage us to come, come often, and come confidently. And Lord, help us also to be reverent in our prayers. Help us to ask big things of the God who is in heaven and does all that he pleases. Help us not be overly casual. Because I fear that oftentimes if we're over, overly casual, we, we actually won't pray as much as we should. So let us remember that you are the God in heaven. And Lord, and Lord encourage us to pray with and for other believers more. May prayer become more of the language that we use when we are together. We pray in Christ's name, amen.